welcome them. to see you today and glad to welcome those who are worshiping with us online. I didn't know how many people would be here because it's spring break and some people went out of town for spring break. We got a lot of families that have children. They go see their grandparents or go somewhere on a trip. If you live in Panama City Beach, where do you go for spring break? I just wondered. <laughs> how does that work? And, and by the way, if Wednesday is the first day of spring, how come it's so cold outside? You know, these are the questions that keep me up at night. Not you, but me. But I'm glad that you're here. Now, last week we started a new series in Lent. We, this is the season of Lent. And we talked about forgiveness. Do you remember that? And, and we talked about the fact that we can be forgiven. And, and what a great God we serve who loves us and forgives us. And so today in this second of the series, we're going to talk about assurance. Assurance of our salvation. You know, you can go back and watch our messages online. Does anybody ever go back and look at a message if you missed one in a series? Okay, there's four of you plus my mother. Okay, great. <laughs> so anyway, you can go back and look. And I would encourage you really seriously, I would encourage you if you were not here last week to go back and look at this first message because this series uh, is seven weeks long. It goes through Easter. And I think it'll, it'll bless your heart. I know it will if you'll go back and look at it. And so today we're going to move ahead and look at assurance. Now, a kindergarten teacher was teaching Sunday school, and she was teaching the children about how God can forgive and how we all sin and make mistakes, but we can be forgiven. And so she turned to little Billy, and she said, Now, Billy, tell me what you have to do in order to expect to be forgiven of your sins. And without missing a beat, little Billy said, The first thing you've got to do is sin. Now, that's pretty smart. That, that's a pretty sharp kid who learns, you know, that there's got to be sin in order to be forgiven, right? And so that's true. And so the quicker we get like little Billy and just get honest and say, okay, I'm guilty, I sin, please forgive me, the better off we are. Now, there was a family who was trying to talk about what it means to be a part of Lent. What is Lent and how does it take place? And so this family... It was a dad and a mom, and there were three daughters. The girls were 11, 8, and 6. And he was explaining to them what Lent was all about and what goes along with it. And the father said, Lent is a time for you to do what the Bible calls repent. And this means that you move toward God and not away from God. And we say that we're sorry for the things that we've done that were sinful in our lives. And a Lent is a time where many Christians think about the life that they're living and take an inventory of it. And then they celebrate what Jesus did on the cross and through his resurrection for you and me. 
So far, so good, the father thought. The children's eyes had not glazed over. They were still listening to him. So he kept going, and he said, Now some people like to show that they're thinking about Jesus and all that he gave up by giving something up themselves during Lent, like maybe your computer or maybe coffee or dessert or meat or television. You know, there's all kinds of things that you can give up. He said, it doesn't make God love us more. It just makes us more open to God and less cluttered with the junk in our lives. And the girls were still paying attention. So the father said, we would like to do that as a family. Can you think of something you'd like to give up during Lent? He said, your mother and I have decided we're going to give up sweets, something special to show God that he means something to us. And the old, oldest daughter said, Okay, well, I'll give up sweets. That's not a problem. And the middle daughter spoke up, too. And she said, yes, I'll give up sweets as well. And then the six-year-old was there. She's really thinking. These six-year-olds, they're smart. They're sharp. And, they're th- and he could tell she was concentrating and really pondering. And so he let her wait. And finally, she got her answer. And, and she nodded with satisfaction and a thoughtful conclusion. And confidently, she said, I want to give up consequences for Lent. That's smart, y'all, for a six-year-old to say that. Can you imagine? Don't you want to give up consequences? Yeah. You know, wouldn't you like to just be able to do whatever you want to sometimes and not have any consequences? But we do have consequences. We can't give up consequences. We have to deal with consequences. And so what do we do with them? Well, we take them to Jesus who can take them from us. Now, looking at the seven last words of Jesus, we said last week it was forgiveness, and this week it's assurance. And I want us to look at Luke, the 23rd chapter, because what we're going to talk about is the two criminals behind the cross of Jesus. You remember, they were crucified with Jesus, two different men. They had two totally different perspectives on what was going on around them and in their lives right then. It says, one of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too. And us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, Don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you today you will be with me in paradise. Two different men facing death, two different perspectives, two totally different attitudes about what they were facing. One said, hey, I don't even believe that you're the Messiah. I don't believe that it makes any difference. I think when you're dead, you're dead. It doesn't matter. And the other one said, don't you realize you're about to die? You're, you're seconds away from eternity, and, and you're taking this attitude. Don't you realize that this man can help you? And so, you know, that's the attitude that he was taking. And so the first guy insults Jesus. He, he blasphemes him. He, he put, demeans him or he puts him down. But the second guy knows a little bit. He doesn't know a lot, but he knows enough that he needs to be saved. You know, I believe that we know when we're sinful. I believe that we know when we're guilty. I believe that we know when we need God's forgiveness. I don't think anybody has to tell us. You know, because we just know it. Even Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden hid from God because they knew that they had done wrong. But, but listen, don't let that keep you from God. Don't let it keep you because you think, well, I don't want to talk to God about this. I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. I'm hurt by this. I don't want to hurt God. 
God already knows about it, and God loves you, and he wants to forgive you, and so he's just waiting on you to talk to him about it, and then he will save you. And so this man says, remember me, Jesus. Now, there are five things we must know to be saved, and the first one is this. He would face God after death. These two men that were being crucified, both of them are going to face God after death. You know, some people think, well, I'll just end it all. I'll take my life, and it'll be over, and I won't have to deal with it anymore. But that's really not true, because everyone is going to face God after death. And I always want to try to talk to people who are suicidal, people who are depressed. And I understand that. I understand that they're at a low point in life. I understand emotions, and I'm not judging people. Please believe me. I just want to talk to them about it and say, listen, there's a better way. There's an answer. You know, you can turn to God. And I believe that God loves us and he forgives us. The first criminal starts insulting Jesus. And the other one says, don't you even realize that you've been sentenced to die? Don't you realize the seriousness of the situation? The reason that many people treat God so casually is they don't really believe in an afterlife. They don't believe that anything's going to happen after they're dead. They just think when you're dead, you're dead, but they're wrong. One day, every person is going to give an account to God. And Hebrews says it this way, And just as each person is destined to die once and after that comes the judgment. In other words, everybody's got to face God. There's not going to be somebody who can face God for you. I remember when I was in seminary and I was in a class and they made us memorize scripture. And I would write on note cards, I would write scripture to memorize for this test. And Laura would ride along in the car with me. She was in college. I was in seminary. We were commuting. We had these scriptures. And I would quote them day after day after day. Laura memorized them much quicker than I did. Okay? It was a long time ago. I'm not bitter. I'm not going to hold it against her. She's just a lot smarter than I am. And she's an auditory learner. So she learns things by listening. I just think that's disgusting. But let's move on, okay? Because I, and I did. I memorized the scripture and I took the test and I did okay. But it just took, I had to work at it. And that was one of my scriptures. Only a fool would go through life unprepared. Now, the second thing is he had sinned against God. He had sinned against God. In verse 41, it says, we deserve to die for our crimes. What's going on there? That's confession. When you and I open up and confess and tell God what we've done wrong, we're just telling him the truth because we know that's the only way to deal with the sin in our lives. We have to confess it. We have to get it out. If you just keep shoving it down and suppressing it, it's like a garbage disposal. You ever had one of those? You keep shoving, and finally the thing just explodes and comes out, right? And so you have to take care of it. You have to deal with it on a regular basis. You have to keep a really short leash on that and a short account. And here's what the Bible says about confession. If we confess our sins, it says... To, to him, to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from every wrong. The Bible says we just need to own up to our sins. So don't try to hide it. Don't try to run away from it. Don't try to sugarcoat it. Just be real. James 2 says this. You only have to break one law to be a law breaker. And some people go around thinking, well, I'll get to heaven because I'm better than my brother, or I'm better than my neighbor, or I'm better than that guy I saw on the news last night who did all those horrendous things. 
God doesn't compare. It has nothing to do with that. It doesn't really matter what other people do. Every one of us has to give an account to God. It's irrelevant what other people do. And Romans says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wages are earned by our actions. Now, a long, long, long time ago, I was in high school, and I worked at the grocery store. Back then, we had bag boys at the grocery store. We bagged up your groceries. We carried them out to the car. You're familiar with this, this procedure? You know anything about this? And so they would pay us by the hour. We would make so much money an hour. Now, let me just tell you, I was rolling in the dough in high school, okay? Because I made 50 bucks every two weeks. Yeah, I know. Just go ahead and enjoy that, okay? <laughs> every two weeks, I would get paid 50 bucks, and, and I would work another two weeks, and I would get paid. Now, look, I worked for wages. That meant that I was working by the hour. So if I went on spring break, you know, and I left... And I came back and I said, okay, give me my check. What's he going to say? You're wrong because you went on spring break. You didn't work. I didn't even know what spring break was back then when I was in college and high school. I didn't have a car that would get to Florida. I didn't know where Florida was. I didn't know anybody who had a car who would go to Florida. I didn't know that kids went to Florida for spring break. And if you live here, it's so convenient. Why not take advantage of it, right? In fact, when I was a junior in high school, my, the summer before my senior year, I'm the oldest of four kids. My mom and dad said, you know, if we're going to take a family vacation, we better go this summer because he's leaving, okay? And we did. We went to Daytona Beach. I don't know why we went to Daytona Beach. I think it was because you could drive your car down to the beach. And my dad was cheap, and he didn't want to stay in a real high-rise condo on the water. And so he stayed at this little village in these little cabins. But once again, I'm not bitter, okay? <laughs> you know, but I don't know. It was closer to come to Panama City Beach. Everybody goes to Panama City. I don't know why we didn't come here, right? You know, but I didn't know about shrimp. I, this really happened. When I was a junior in high school, this really happened. I'm not lying. We, we, we ate, I grew up playing football. I ate meat and potatoes, okay? Then my mother, one day she makes shrimp, fried shrimp, okay? I've never had shrimp before. We're sitting at the table, and I'm eating fried shrimp. And I look over at my brother's plate, and he's got all these little pieces of shrimp laying over there on it. And I said to him, how come you don't eat that part? He said, that's the tail, moron. You don't eat the tail of the shrimp. I said, well, I thought it was a little bit crunchy. I, that, really, that really happened, and I've had a lot of dental work since then because of it, okay? So you work, and you get paid by your wage, right? And you earn, well, all you can ever earn is death because there's nothing we've got that will pay for our sins. So we deserve to die. But God gives us the free gift of grace, and it's a gift that only he can offer. Now, the third thing is Jesus was more than a man. Jesus was more than a man. He was a man, but he was also God. It says in Luke, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Okay, is anybody perfect here today? Raise your hand. Nobody's perfect, right? Jesus was perfect. We got somebody over here that's thinking about it. They're thinking. They're leaning toward it, and they're going, so far, so good. Let's see what happens with the rest of my life, okay? 
And so sometimes, you know, you, you think, I, I can do this, and then what do we do? We mess up, we make mistakes. There's only one person who's never sinned. That was Jesus Christ. He was perfect. Now, I want you to, I got some homework for you, okay? I want you to go home today, and I want you to Google something. Does everybody know how to Google? Oh, this is not good. Because, you know, there's nobody, nobody knows how to Google. Well, why did you sit there when I ask you? If I ask you to raise your hand, if you Google, you sat there and looked at me like, huh? So I said, do you Google? Oh, yeah, we Google. Well, where were you before? You don't know what you do. You don't know where you are. You're in a state of confusion. That's where you are. All right, I want you to go home this afternoon. I want you to Google, and I want you to ask Google, who has saved more lives than anybody else? Who has saved more lives than anybody else? And it's a trick question because you're going to get a different answer, okay? And I want to talk about that a little bit because there's this one guy whose name's going to come up, and maybe you've heard of him, but maybe you haven't. And the world didn't pay a lot of attention to him, but his life made a huge difference in the world. He's one of six people in the world who have won the Nobel Peace Prize and the Congressional Medal of Honor and the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Do you know what his name was? Norman Borlaug. Norman Borlaug was an agricultural scientist in the 20th century. And he invented something. He invented the high-yield, drought-resistant, disease-resistant crops that saved over a billion people. Now, think about that. People today, and you see it on the news all the time, they go out and they take a gun and they try to kill as many people as they possibly can, then they kill themselves. And that's what they do with their lives. And here's a guy who said, you know, I've got this gift, and I've got this ability, and I've got this knowledge, and I want to save as many people as I can from dying. And so he saved over a billion people. Norman Borlaug was a man who, who affected China and India and Bangladesh and Pakistan because every year they would have a famine in those countries until Norman Borlaug came along. And they started using what Norman Borlaug taught them. And now those four countries not only are able to feed their people, but they can actually export food to other countries because of Norman Borlaug. He saved over a billion people's lives in the 20th century. The executive director of the UN Food Program said that Norman Borlaug saved more people than anybody else through his heart and his brilliant mind. He was a person that had passion for what he did. He had compassion for other people who were less fortunate. He wanted to do something. He was a truly great man. He was a hero. But let me tell you something about Norman Borlaug. Norman Borlaug was a Christian. Norman Borlaug had his priorities right. He understood, and he put his faith in Jesus Christ. He was a lifelong member of the Evangelical Lutheran Church. He received the Nobel Peace Prize, and he quoted the book of Isaiah when he received his gift. That was the motivation, he said, for what he had done. And his favorite phrase that he would say to people as they left, were, he would always say to them, go with God. Because Norman Borlaug really believed in God. And Norman Borlaug needed a Savior. He saved a lot of people, but he needed a Savior. And even Norman Borlaug didn't save as many people 
as Jesus Christ. And even Norman Borlaug needed Jesus Christ to save him. You see, Norman understood who was really in charge. And even though he had accomplished great things, he didn't sit around saying, boy, I'm, I'm phenomenal, I'm amazing, you know, look at me. He just said, God, how can I serve you? Use what I've got. Use my life to do something beneficial for other people, and God did. On the cross, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians, for God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. You see, it took that perfect gift that said, I'll pay for your sins. And he did it for us. And then the fourth, only grace could save him. Only grace could save this man on the cross. It says that he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me. What's he doing? He's saying there's no way that I can save myself. But I'm going to do one thing before I die. I'm going to ask for Jesus to help me. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Years ago, there was a Wycliffe Bible translator who was a missionary, and he went to Central America. And when he got there, there were two things he wanted to do. One thing he wanted to do, he wanted to tell as many people about Jesus as he possibly could. He wanted to see as many people there in Central America in that little village come to Christ as he could possibly see. And so he worked there for eight years. And what he did while he was there was he translated the Gospel of Luke into their native language so that they could read it for themselves, understand it, and follow it, okay? Now, he's there eight years, and he's a missionary, and he's translating the Bible, and he's trying to lead people to Christ, and nobody's coming. Nobody's making a commitment. And he feels like a failure, and he doesn't really know what to do. But then one day something happened. There was a man named Juan. And Juan was in the village, and he had a heart attack, and they took him to the hospital. And he was in and out of a coma, and they came and got the missionary, and they said, you need to come and talk to Juan. And so he did. He went in, and, and Juan kind of groggily woke up a little bit. And he, he just looked at Juan, and he said, Juan, let me ask you a question. Do you know that God loves you, and he sent his son Jesus to die for you? And Juan nodded his head. Yes, he did know. And then he said, do you know that if you invite Christ into your life and trust him, that he will forgive you of all of your sins? And Juan nodded his head. Yes. And then he said, Juan, would you like to put your faith in Jesus Christ before you die? And so he nodded his head. Yes. And the missionary prayed with him. And Juan just fell back off into a coma. And the missionary had to leave. And he never knew what happened to Juan. He didn't know if he lived or died. He didn't know if he really understood. He didn't know if he really made a commitment to Christ or not. Until five years later. Five years later, he gets to go back to this little village in Central America. And when he gets there, he wants to know about the people. And he walks in and he's shocked. Because he sees a little church there in the village. And they've got 65 people coming to church in that little village there. And he said, what happened? Who came and talked to you? What missionary came here and told you about Jesus Christ? And they said, well, let us tell you. Do you remember Juan? He said, yeah. He said, well, Juan got better. He lived. And he remembered his commitment to Christ. And then he spent all of his time talking to us about Jesus and how our lives could be changed too. And one by one, we started making commitments to Christ 
And now we've got a church. You see, the missionary thought he was a failure because he, he didn't lead anybody to Christ, but he led one person to Christ. And you know what happened? God did the rest. God took that one person, and he led everybody else to Christ in the village. The missionary didn't even realize what had happened until later. Now, let me ask you a question. Does God ever ask you to do something for him? Does he ever put it on your heart to just say yes about something he's calling you to do? There was a man in the church I served in Niceville, Florida years ago, over 40 years ago. Uh, I was a youth minister there, and he started a young adult Sunday school class, and he didn't have a lot of young adults. But he just felt called to do it, and he started praying about it, and he started meeting. And so I started going to his class, and, you know, one by one, we would invite other friends, and it would grow, and we would get more and more young adults. And so after a while, it grew to a pretty large class, and he just kept doing it. He just kept being faithful and obedient to what God called him to do. You know, I told you that recently I went to Alan Newton's mother's funeral in Niceville, and I, I got to see John Macon and his family. You know what he's doing today? He's still teaching that class. And now he's got all kinds of people coming to it. You know, it was a slow start, and he could have given up, and he could have felt like, this is stupid. I don't know why God wants me to do this. I don't even think he does. And he could have quit, but he didn't do that. And God blessed his efforts. You know, I've told that story in other churches where I've served. I, I told that story when I lived up in the Auburn, Opelika area. And I said, you know, if God's calling you to do something, you just do what he's calling you to do, and you trust him for the results. 1 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the growth. And so there were these two couples in the church I was serving, and they took that to heart. And they said, we feel called to start a young adult class and we're going to try to reach as many people as possible. One of them attended the 940 hour, so they started their class at 11. The other one attended the 11 o'clock hour. They started their class at 940. And their wives were at home, and, and so they didn't work outside the house. And every Monday, they would cook for all the people in their group. And they would just come in for lunch real quick and eat lunch and then leave. And they would have get-togethers at their houses. They both had big houses, and they could have people over. And they just poured their hearts into these young people, these young adults. And they started feeding those two services because people would come to their class. And then the 940 service started to grow because they were inviting people to their class, and they would go to worship with them. And, and the 11 o'clock service started to grow for the same reason. Do you know they started out with nothing? Both of those classes grew to 60 people apiece. 60 people, there were couples in there. They came, and, you know, they wanted to give up at first. They were, they were discouraged. They were disillusioned. But I told them that story about John Macon, and they just kept going. It made all the difference. That's what it means to follow Christ. It means that you just say yes, and you trust God for the rest. Ephesians says this, Not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one could boast. In other words, it's not something we do. It's something God does through us that he wants to accomplish, and it's all by grace. One time an old man was asked, what is grace? And he said, it's something or nothing. <laughs> Even I can understand that, you know. You don't earn it. It's just a free gift that's given to you. Now, the last thing, Jesus would save this man if he asked, but he had to ask. He would save him. The thief on the cross knew that Jesus would save him, and so he did ask, and it made the difference in his eternity. 
Now, he didn't ask for his pain to be taken away. You know, if I were being crucified on the cross, I might ask, you know, Jesus, could you take my pain away? Because it's a miserable, horrible death. He didn't do that. He was more concerned about his eternal life. He's a thief, but he knows what's important. And, and because he knew that he needed salvation. Acts says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's that simple. All you got to do is believe it and confess it and you can be saved. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, real quickly, I'm just going to give you four little things to write down here real fast, okay? Here's what I want you to know. Salvation is immediate. It's immediate. How do I know that? Because he says, today today. Second, salvation is certain. He said, you, today you will, not you may be, but you will be. Third, he says, salvation is a relationship. You will be with me. You see, it's not about religion. It's about a relationship. And then he says, the whole reason that God made us is for us to have a relationship. And then the fourth thing is, salvation is a place forever. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is a place that's real, and it's a place that lasts forever. So when it's time to be saved, what's the best time to do that? Well, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. And I don't really understand why people put it off. I don't understand why they say, well, I'm not ready to do that. I had a brother-in-law in Tennessee on top of the mountain, and he thought that if he said, I want to be saved, that he had to be perfect, and he knew he couldn't be perfect, so he wouldn't do it until he got cancer and he was about to die. And one of his drivers who drove a truck for him, he had several trucks, he came every, to see him every day when he got off work. And Buck led my brother-in-law, Glenn, to the Lord, and he made a commitment to Christ before he died, but, but he waited so long to do that. Now, as our girls were growing up, when they got to college, they did something, and I really hope your girls or boys did this too, because I'll feel better, right? Because everybody talks about the preacher's kids. You know that, don't you? They talk, don't be hanging around with the preacher's kids. They're trouble, okay? You know why they're like that, don't you? Because they hang around your kids. That's why. That's right. Don't you forget it. So here's the deal. They go off to college, and what do they do? They do what I did. They bounce their checkbook. They're overdrawn in their checking account. I thought I had money in there. I looked at it. I tried to take care of it. Somehow, poof, it's gone. It's magic. I don't know. But, Dad, you've got a money tree in the backyard. Just put some more money in my account, right? And, you know, they would call us. They wouldn't even know it. We'd get the statement, and they would call, and I would say, uh, how's your checking account doing? I've got three cents in there, Dad, so just get off of me, okay? No, wrong. You're overdrawn. You're overdrawn by about 20 bucks. How can I be overdrawn? That's not right. They've cheated me. We need to go to the bank. No, there's no danger there. So I would say, I would say to them, um, they would say, could you put some money in my account? And I would say, I've already done it because that's what dads do. Now, there came a point when they, they got older where I said, now that you keep telling me you're grown and how smart you are and how independent you are, and we met Elizabeth, our older daughter, at the bank. She was 21, and you're grown now. Okay, so look, if, you, if you're overdrawn, 
Don't call us because we're taking our name off your account, okay? Call this guy right here at the bank. He's the one you're going to have to deal with. And the banker's eyes were this big, <laughs> and my daughter's eyes were this big, and I picked up one of his cards, and she reached over and picked up a card too. And I looked at the banker, and I said, she's going to need that. And you know, it was amazing. Elizabeth just overnight transformed. And all of a sudden, she kept up with her money. And she never was overdrawn again. She just made sure that she had enough money. Do you know what she does today? She works for a guy who builds houses. And out of all the jobs she could get, you know what she's in charge of? Money. Money. This kid who never knew how to turn off a light switch is in charge of the money. There, the boss says, I need this. She says, forget it. It ain't in the budget. Her husband comes in. Can I have, she doesn't even let him finish. Sorry, it's not in the budget. I mean, she's ruthless about it. Elizabeth, I'm visiting with you. Can we have air conditioning? I'm dying here. I need oxygen. Nope, nope. It's staying where it is up there. You just have to go sit in the truck for a while and let it run. Okay, pal? This kid is amazing now. She's dealing with money, and she's, I mean, you know, only God could do that. But here's my point. God, he has provenient grace. That means he provides a way for us to be forgiven even before we ask. And he sent Jesus to die for us. And if we were the only person on the earth, he would have sent him anyway. And it didn't even matter that it happened before we were born. It's provided for us. And so we turn to him and we say, could you forgive me? What does he say? He says, I already have. I already have. Now listen, when he dies for you and me, he has no guarantee that we're going to take advantage of that in the right way. I mean, he could die in vain, and we, we wouldn't respond to it. But that's how much he loves us. That's unconditional love. And the book of Romans says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what do you have to do? You got to ask. All you got to do is ask. Let's pray. Father, we're just so grateful that you're a God of love and mercy. We're grateful that you provide a way for us to have a relationship with you. We thank you for what your son Jesus has done for us. And Lord, we want to take advantage of that in the right way. So, Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here today who's never accepted Christ, they've never said, you know, I need you, forgive me, and they've asked you for forgiveness, I pray that they would do it right now, that they would just open up their hearts and lives and realize that you love them, that there's nothing to be afraid of, that you will forgive them, and then they can have that assurance. They can know that you have died for them. They can have the peace that passes all understanding if they'll just ask. Lord, I pray that they'll ask in Jesus' name.